Are you all excited to hear about what God has done? That is what we're here to do, so please stand with me as we read Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We're also going to read a little bit of chapter 6, particularly uh, chapter 6, beginning in verse 28. Let us hear now together the word of God. And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt... They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we praise you for what you have done in history and what you are doing in the present time. And as we uh, turn to this passage this evening, uh, fill our hearts with a sense of uh, strong faith uh, and great joy with anticipation for what you will do uh, for your people and in your people. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we return to Exodus this evening, and we are coming to the second encounter between Moses and Pharaoh. And you may recall the first encounter, that it did seemingly not go very well for Israel. Uh, Moses delivered the word, Pharaoh said no, he added to their uh, daily burdens by taking away their straw, and the Israelites were not happy about how that first encounter went. But as we saw when we looked at that passage, we were anticipating that God is going to fulfill his word in due time. At just the right time, he's going to bring his people out, but it's going to involve a lot of signs and wonders, a lot of judgments, and then ultimately this deliverance of his people. 
Now, what we see in our passage and in many passages in Exodus is that one of God's aims in the book of Exodus is that the nations will know that he is the Lord. That's one of God's aims with this book and what happened in it. And that is therefore our aim is to know our God through this book. We need to know that he is the Lord, the eternal, self-existent, I am who can do all things and who has great power to deliver his people from their troubles. So this is our uh, aim and our desire is that we would magnify the Lord this evening as we read this account. What this account is for us as we look at the second meeting uh, between uh, Moses and, and Pharaoh is, I think, a preview of what is to come. It's a preview because it shows the power of God being greater than all the powers of Egypt, all the false gods of Egypt, all the demonic forces at work within Egypt. God is greater than those false gods. God is greater than Pharaoh. Now, it's a small preview because you're thinking, okay, we're watching some snakes uh, fight on the ground and Aaron's snake eats up the others. Is that, you know, that big of a deal? Well, it's a preview of what is to come. And interestingly, when it says that Aaron's uh, rod swallowed up the Egyptians' snakes, the word swallowed, it's the very same word that's used in Exodus 15 of the Red Sea encounter. It says that the Egyptians were swallowed up at the Red Sea. And so it seems like there's a bit of a preview of the, a much bigger swallowing uh, that will happen uh, in the judgment of the Lord and in the salvation of the Lord <coughs> for his people. So as we uh, go into the passage, we return to Moses' objections. Uh, Moses has been rehashing the same objection over and, and over again. I don't know what number this is. This might be the fifth time that Moses has objected uh, to his job. Uh, but you look at Mo, uh, Exodus 6, verse 30. He says to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, <clears throat> and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Well, this is interesting because the whole point was that Pharaoh was not going to heed him. I mean, the Lord said that to him, right? He will not listen to you. And so Moses is coming back to the wrong point again and again and again and concerned about his oratorical skills. He's concerned about his lack of oratorical skills. He says, I'm not a good rhetorician. I'm not going to be able to persuade Pharaoh through my speech to do what you're commanding us to do and commanding him to do. But this is really not the point, actually. Moses is just the messenger. It didn't matter how eloquently or non-eloquently Moses said, let my people go. It didn't change anything, right, as to how well he said it. or He just delivered the message. The point was that God was going to do this. This was God's work. This was God's redemption. This isn't about Moses at all. But how like Moses we can be, right? Focused upon ourselves or our, our abilities or our lack of abilities. And we're thinking this is not going to work out because things are depending upon me. And I am known to fail at times. I am liable to failure. I am liable to a lack of skills and, and wisdom. And so... We feel like the world is resting upon our shoulders when it really isn't. It's, it's, it's in God's hands. 
As we sing the song, you know, kids, he's got the whole world in his hands. Not you. You don't hold the world in your hands. We need to get our eyes back on what God is doing. God has a bigger plan here. Moses is just missing the point. He's, like, he's going back over and over again on his this problem with his speech. And God says, oh, this is not the point, Moses. The point is, I'm going to show my glory. I'm going to show my power. This is all part of the plan. So just deliver the message. And that's how the Lord responds to Moses' objections in verses 1 through 3. He says in verse 2, You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now this should really resolve Moses' objection because the whole point was that Pharaoh would not listen. Pharaoh would reject the command of God. Now, how is this for a preaching assignment? Imagine you're given this job. Go preach to these people. I'm going to sovereignly make it that they reject you. I mean, is that a preaching assignment any of us would want? Martin Luther had some good comments on this. He, <clears throat> he said, the question is why God bids Moses preach Although God himself says, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Is it not foolish for someone to say to another, Friend, preach to Pharaoh, but be advised that he will not listen to you, for I intend to harden him. This is a question we might ask. Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to deliver this message? Luther, in his regularly blunt sort of way, he said, I would refuse such an assignment from anyone who would say, Preach yourself. (laughs) But the answer is that we are bidden to preach, but we are not bidden to justify people and make them pious. This, this thought should comfort all preachers and Christians, and everybody should faithfully perform their calling and duties. Only the word of God is entrusted to Moses. Not the responsibility of making Pharaoh soft or hard by preaching. That's the case for all of us as we share the word with others. It's not our responsibility to soften or harden people It is to simply deliver the truth to others. Now, this is very uh, encouraging and very relieving because it means that we can go about our duties faithfully, deliver the word faithfully, and leave the results to God. Let us first be faithful rather than successful. It's not about the results or the outcome. God will bring forth the increase or the lack of increase from our efforts. We also note that Moses and Aaron were not impressive on their own. Did you notice that little detail in verses uh, 6 and 7? Why does Moses talk about how old they were? It's like, what's the relevance of knowing that they were 80 and 83 years old? It says, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So think about this. These are not these young impressive, strapping warriors that went in with all their battle garb and their big swords and shields and said, let God's people go. This is not who you're facing here. You have two senior citizens facing Pharaoh. God was reserving the glory of this redemption for himself. Moses and Aaron are not glorious by themselves. Dwight L. Moody, he had a great comment about this. He said, Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody. 
40 years in the desert learning that he was a nobody, and 40 years showing what God can do with a somebody who found out he was a nobody. <laughs> so there's 120 years, these, these different phases. He, he thought he was a great, probably thought he was a great guy in this great Egyptian court. Then he learned in the wilderness that he was a nobody, and then he got to see how God uses nobodies to do great things. That's the point of these dates that we are given here. So it is best for us to learn as soon as possible that in and of ourselves we are nobody. We, we do not, we don't have no abilities of our own except what God enables us to do, but then he only enables us to do that which will glorify him in the end. So let's look at <clears throat> this, uh, this particular miracle that takes place with the uh, the changing of the uh, rod into the snake. But also, let's before we do that, let's look at verses 4 through 5. And here we see what God's intention was in hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why did God determine to do this? It says, <clears throat> Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt. So this is a very important passage for us for understanding what is God doing in all this? Why is he prolonging this whole uh, episode of conflict between Moses and Pharaoh? And we have to do this thing over and over again. Well, there's a so that phrase here. It's in verse 4. I will make it that Pharaoh will not heed you so that... So that I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land, and that the effect of this will be that the Egyptians know who I am. God intended to make his name great and known in the earth. We read this in Romans 9, right? Uh, when Paul quoted that God, for one purpose, for a very purpose, raised up Pharaoh, that he would show his power through Pharaoh, that is, through the judgments inflicted on Pharaoh. <clears throat> and that God's name would be declared in all the earth. Now, th- this, this may uh, shock people at times. They think, what is it about God that he's so, in, uh, so committed to making his name known, so committed to his own glory and power being known in the earth? What is God, why is God so focused on this? This is one aspect of the Christian faith that seems to bother many today. The Bible is a profoundly God-centered book. And since so many people think in a man-centered way today, the storyline of Scripture just doesn't make sense to many people. They They can't even understand what's going on. They're like, why should God get so much attention? What is this all about? You read this with atheists. They say, this is a very megalomaniacal, self-focused God of the Old Testament. That's what Richard Dawkins said about God. Well, to even say it that way is to use a human standard in analyzing what we're seeing in the Scriptures. We're used, to, we're used to, in our human relationships, this struggle for preeminence. This is what humans do, right? They vie for preeminence. We vie for glory. People want to be more glorious than the other person. And yet we intuitively know that there's something immoral about seeking glory, at least in the sense that if somebody else does it against us, we don't like it. We respond that way, right? You know, somebody else prioritizes their glory above my glory, and we all fight about this. 
And so they ask the question, why should God get so much attention? What about me? Well, the answer is this. God actually deserves the attention. You don't. God actually is glorious in a way that you are not. God deserves what you don't deserve. God is great. He is worthy of attention. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of being glorified. It is good for the world to know that he is God. And the sooner that we understand the profoundly God-centered aim in what God is doing here, the better we will be able to understand what is taking place. And I think at times the better we'll be able to understand what's happening in our own lives as well. What is most important and should be most important in our lives is the glory of God. We say this, right? This is my aim, to glorify God. But yet, the way in which God does that often comes in ways that can uh, shock us or frighten us or be difficult for us. They come through hard things. God exalts uh, the lowly, but he abases the proud. He he works this way in history throughout. And so we need to keep in mind what God's aim is here, is to make his glory known. So now we come to the miraculous encounter, the miraculous sign, the first of these miraculous signs that is performed in the sight of Pharaoh. Now notice, Pharaoh actually asks for a miracle in verse 8, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, why did the Lord use a snake as a sign to Pharaoh? Everybody who knows anything about the Bible, a little bit about the Bible, should remember that snakes in Scripture have a very bad association, right? Genesis 3, the tempter, and the fall, and the serpent, and... We have very bad associations with snakes, although we may remember the bronze serpent, right, which is a sign of God's redemption, and Jesus himself says that was a picture of his redemption on the cross. So why snakes, and what does it mean to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian court? Well, snakes in Egyptian society were used as a symbol of royal authority. On one hand, the Egyptians feared snakes, but on the other hand, they worshipped them. Sometimes those things go together. You fear, and what you fear, you worship. And you see as a source of power. They worshipped, of course, the creation in general and and deified aspects of the creation. Philip Ryken, he comments on the Egyptian perspective on snakes. He says, the Egyptians were fascinated with snakes partly because they were so afraid of them. Many of them carried amulets to protect them from Aphophis, the serpent god who personified evil. Egyptian literature contains various spells and incantations to afford protection from snake bites. It was this fear of snakes that led Pharaoh to use the serpent as the symbol of his royal authority. He had a ceremonial headdress that was crested with a fierce female cobra. We've probably seen pictures of these things. 
The idea was that Pharaoh would terrorize his enemies the way a cobra strikes fear into her prey. And so he, he liked this symbol. So it's very fitting that you're in the Egyptian court. Pharaoh might very well be wearing this, this headdress with a snake. And so God gives him this sign of his authority over snakes and over the evil spirits that would perhaps be behind these things. Now, one ancient Egyptian source notes a prayer that Pharaoh would make when ascending the throne. They would even speak of snakes as he ascended the throne and took on this new royal authority. This was a prayer. Now, think about who, who is Pharaoh praying to here? O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like the terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like the fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like the awe of thee. Let me rule, a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. It seems to me that Pharaoh was channeling the evil realm and the evil spirits to give him power. The snake was just a symbol of that, but what, we are, what we're reminded here as we confront the false religion of Egypt is the fact that it is the demonic world that stands behind false religion throughout the world. Remember, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 8, that he says that we know that an idol itself has no existence. But he does say that the demonic stood behind and inspired (coughs) these false religions throughout the world. And so what we're witnessing here in this account is not just a confrontation between some snakes on the ground, It is a confrontation between the power of the living God and the power of the demonic realm itself. And so Pharaoh asks for a sign, and then they give the sign that God had said to give. Now this brings us back to the the question of, when an unbeliever asks for a sign, if they see the sign, will they believe? Will they fall down and worship God automatically because they saw the miracle. And we might be wondering that. We say, great, Pharaoh, he saw the sign. He's got to submit to God now. He's got to let the people of Israel go. No, it takes a lot more signs than that before this deliverance takes place. Unbelievers sometimes ask for miracles, but when they see the miracle or the sign, they can explain it away or reject it. The problem is not a lack of evidence, it's a problem of a hard heart. That was the issue, it was a hard heart. You know that the Pharisees, they asked Jesus a similar question. They, they would attempt, test him at times. They come to him in Matthew 12 and they say, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And what was the motivation of that? What were they getting, getting out of this? What were they really seeking as they say, we want to see a sign from you? Well, Jesus had been doing signs all over the place. This wasn't their real problem. There were so many signs and wonders associated with Jesus' ministry, they would have heard or perhaps seen with their own eyes things that Jesus had done. Jesus did not, was not willing to do parlor tricks to entertain them. This is kind of their intention, right? Is do a trick for me. Do, do something exciting. Show me something, Jesus. And he says, no sign will be given to this evil and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. That is, his death and his resurrection that was soon to come. And if they would not receive that sign, then none of the rest would matter, because that was the ultimate sign of what Jesus had come to do. And so that reminds us that miracles, in and of themselves, do not change hearts. We've talked about this before. 
Miracles are, yes, they come, they testify, they can authenticate uh, God's true servants, and they can point to God's works, but the heart must be softened if those, if those signs are going to be received in faith in the right manner. <clears throat> and we also see that one of the ways that Pharaoh felt uh, quite at ease to reject this sign was by the fact that his magicians could reproduce a similar sign, right? We know that um, the magicians of Pharaoh, uh, we, we know two of their names at least, uh, Janice and Jambres from Second Timothy 3, they're named there, uh, though we don't know if there was more than two. But Pharaoh called them in, says, hey, we got, we got magic tricks, we got enchantments, we got miracles. Uh, so he had his enchanters do this as well. Pharaoh also called the wise men, in verse 11, and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Now what were these magicians doing? Was this a real uh, miracle? Uh, was this a optical illusion? You know, some people ask that question. Of course, we know there are uh, magicians in the world that, that operate on the basis of optical illusions that if you learn about them or you ask for their secrets, you can actually give a natural explanation for what they did, and you can make sense of it from a naturalistic standpoint. But that is, not, I don't think, what's happening here. I mean, it's hard to imagine how this could be an optical illusion. A straightforward reading of the text suggests that these rods were cast down and they really became snakes and that Aaron's snake ate the other snakes. That's the straightforward reading of the text. It's a reminder that the, the demon world does have limited power to work miracles. Uh, or, or work things beyond the natural realm. It is a reality. They have nothing in comparison with the power of God. I mean, in the standpoint from the infinite, infinite power of God, in comparison with that, there, there's nothing. You remember, of course, the demons that had <coughs> inhabited the, uh, the garrison demoniac, right? They, they tremble and they ask Jesus, please, please, please don't send us into the abyss. You know, please send us into the pigs. They're, they don't put up a fight, do they? There, when they're confronted with the power of Christ, they don't put up a fight. They have no ability to resist Jesus. They don't say, Where's, there's a thousand of us and there's one of him and we're going to fight. That's not how it works. Yeah, so the, the evil uh, realm, the, the, the demonic realm, does have some uh, ability to perhaps work miracles like we see in this passage. But it's noteworthy what they don't do and seemingly can't do here particularly as we get to the next plague. We're going to study this next time, but in the plague when the water is turned into blood, what do the magicians do? Well, they they turn some more water into blood. And we might be thinking, why don't you fix the blood problem in the water instead? Like, that would be a lot more uh, impressive miracle, wouldn't it? Couldn't you cleanse all the water of Egypt? They don't do that. They seemingly can't do that. They can only do a cheap imitation of what God can do. It's good to remember that Satan has never made anything. He just destroys and manipulates God's creation. He's an imitator, he's a cheap imitator, he's a liar, and his power is limited. And so what we're seeing here, when the rod of Aaron, the snake, 
eats the snakes of the magicians of Egypt, what we are seeing is the preview and the point being that God is greater than the gods of Egypt. It's a small picture of the supremacy of God that we're, we're being prepared for the fact that every single plague, 1 through 10, is going to show us God's absolute supremacy over the false gods of Egypt and over Pharaoh himself. It's long been known that each of the plagues goes after one of the Egyptian gods, since the Egyptians worshipped all these aspects of creation. It was like dominoes, like line up these ten gods and knock every single one of them down with the plagues. God's mighty hand is going to be made known with every plague to decimate the land of Egypt. So what can we draw from this, brothers and sisters? How does this help us this evening? Let us remember that the evil one with all of his forces is nothing compared to the God that we serve. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. As 1 John 4 says, John comforts us with the reality of our adoption as children of God. What does he say? You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And as we look at the forces of evil out there, whether they come in the realm of the demonic or whether it's the world itself, remember that, yes, we need to have we need to have a sober estimation of the forces that are against us. It's not wise in this battle to be, to be ignorant, to be uh, treating it all as a laughing kind of matter, as if there's not really serious things happening. We need to be sober in the battle. Yes, the Bible tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That does raise our sobriety levels, I hope. But we are not to fear him at all. Do not fear the evil one, because the one we serve is far, far greater than the evil one. This is what First John tells us. The one who is in us, our Lord and Redeemer Jesus, is greater than the evil one. And, and the evil one's dominion over this world is being broken progressively through the reign of Christ. And we can connect this back to what happens with the snakes, back to Moses' trepidation and his doubts about his mission. Moses was so focused on himself and, or, and on his lack of abilities, and this drove his doubts about the success of, success of his mission. But as we've seen so far, this really has nothing to do with Moses at all. <clears throat> what we are being uh, taught here by our passage is to rem- remember that we are serving a very great God who is always with us wherever we go. And whatever mission he has given us to do, he stands behind us, or stands in front of us, as it were, leads, leads the way in front of us. But his power, his authority stands behind us. Now, if you were to look at the world or the devil, with, and, and you compare the world and the, the demonic hordes to your own abilities... You can see why we might get fearful if that's all we're looking at. In that case, the odds are stacked against you. But this is not to be our analysis. It's not me all on my own with my limited abilities and limited knowledge against the world and the devil. It's not that way at all. John says, notice what First John does say and doesn't say. John doesn't say, 
You are greater than he who is in the world. Did you notice it doesn't say that? You are greater than he who is in the world. That's not what it says. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And that's why Martin Luther, when he wrote the hymn that we so often sing, he he asked this question. He said, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabaoth his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the angelic armies of the universe, that's who we serve, and that is who is our Savior, brothers and sisters. And so when we face down the powers of darkness like Moses did, Moses, the 80-year-old man facing the powers of darkness, what is it that could give him any confidence? It's that God stood behind every word that he said and every act that he did. This was, of course, the perspective uh, that enabled David to face down Goliath. The Lord of hosts was far bigger than Goliath in David's estimation. And so, for David, as he looked at this, it wasn't a contest between little David and big Goliath, right? That was not the contest at all. It was a contest between the almighty Lord of the angelic armies and little Goliath. That was really what was happening. And so it should be for Moses and Aaron. Yes, they're facing the great empire of Egypt, the great mighty empire that built the pyramids and the great pharaoh and the the great armies and the chariots and the horses and all of that. But really, it's not a fair fight for Egypt at all, is it? They are going to lose badly because of what God is going to do because they are facing the one who is known as I am. The one who is self-existent, eternal, infinite, all-powerful, whom no power in heaven and on earth can oppose without losing. And so, brothers and sisters, when we serve our Lord Jesus, we, when we stand against idols and against kings who oppose the Lord and against the evil one himself, we do so in the strength of the Lord. We do so as servants of the Most High God. And therefore, we really have nothing to fear at all. So let us close in prayer this evening, asking that God would equip us with that right perspective that we need in, in the battle. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your great power, that great power that you have made known in the redemption of your people from Egypt. I I do pray that these accounts of what you have done would stay with us and would strengthen us in our battles, knowing that you are greater. You who are in us, Lord Jesus, are greater than the one who is in the world. We praise you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.